going back to your point about women having bigger egos, do you think it's possible that women, and particularly women of color, that it's a survival mechanism? Oh, because we have to be our best cheerleader. We have to be. Yeah. We have to be our own hype man. Yeah, because no, because other than else is going other to do than it. me and you, right. right? Other than me and you, like, and our crew, our rider dies. Who the fuck else is telling us that? That we're beautiful. That we're powerful. That we're brilliant. That we're creative. Dominant culture isn't telling us that. I'm trying to think of the classiest way I can say this about my guest today, but eh, fuck it. I'm just going to say it. Look, there are some women who just have big dick energy or BDE, Oprah, BDE, Michelle Obama, BDE, Rihanna, BDE. I could call this podcast BDE, but I decided to go with a less subtle title by calling it Jamel Hill is Unbothered, but I wanted to always bring sort of a similar energy. But my guest on today's pod permeates BDE because only someone with BDE would call their audiobook the baddest bitch in the room. But no doubt she earned that title. She was a mainstay with the Wu-Tang Clan. She managed RZA, JZA, Old Dirty Bastard, Q-Tip, Tribe Called Quest, and many others. She was born to Korean immigrants in Vancouver, She's about a buck ten soaking wet, and she became one of the most respected people in hip hop, despite being a total outsider. She is the living embodiment of straight up no chaser. I have so much I want to ask her about her journey and the hip hop legends that she's worked with. This much I know, Sophia Chang is not to be trifled with, and she's up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. It seems probably, I would gather that a lot of people may have heard the name Sophia Chang, but maybe you didn't put two and two together or figure out um, exactly uh, what her place was in hip hop history. But nevertheless, um, as much as she's been associated with some of the most dynamic groups and artists of all time, what I appreciate about Sophia is that you keep it real. I mean, you keep it so extra real. I wish there, you know, people say, keep it a hundred, keep it a thousand. I put like 70 more zeros on that bitch <laughs> just for you. And so this is why Sophia is one of my favorite people. And we just met today. Listen to Sophia Chang. This is 60 seconds with Sophia, your YouTube yeah. series, essentially. So go subscribe. But here's a taste of what you can expect if you subscribe to her YouTube channel. Ladies, let's talk about the species that Danielle calls men who love to waste women's time. These guys want all the trappings of a relationship. The intimacy, the access, the conversations, the fun, the walks in the rain, the meals al fresco, but draw the line at sex because they're in a relationship or they're just not into it. But if that's the case, then why did you flirt with me, tell me I'm amazing, ask for my number, then text me late at night? You never planned on giving up the D? Then what the fuck are we doing here? Oh, you just want to be friends? Homie, I'm 53. I'm good on friends. Many of us don't ask a man if he's interested because we're afraid of the answer yeah it's a scary question but so much better to know the truth than allow a man to deplete our time energy and most of all our love one of the great things about being grown is having candid conversations around coitus men don't waste my time anymore you see my time is my money and I hustle too damn hard out here to squander it on these tricks so if we're not fucking or making money together then do me a favor keep it moving and stop wasting my damn time my name is Sophia Chang and I'm the baddest bitch in the room 
So there's a lot of women out there. I know there's some men right now who are recoiling like, oh, my God, or whatever. But so many women can relate to the idea of their time being wasted. So did something set that off or were you just in that mood or like, I got to get this off my chest? To be honest, something did set that off. It was um, it was one of my closest friends, and she was spending a lot of time with this man. And to me, they were in love. And but he wouldn't take that step. And you know, me and all of my friends, like you, we're the baddest bitches in the room. Who wouldn't want to spend time with us, right? So you want to spend time with us, but for me, Jamel, I need clarity from the gate because I. I'm 54. I don't have time to be playing with you. So it's like I said in there, either we're fucking or we're making money or you can just keep it moving. Because I have amazing friends already, right? Like you have to be an extraordinary man for me to go, okay, let's just be friends or as opposed to let's do business or let's get in the bedroom. I think that there are a lot of men, and I've had many conversations with women about this, who like the proximity to amazing women but won't take that step. But And I'm okay with that, Jamel. What I'm not okay with is the ambiguity, mm. right? So in other words, make it clear that it's never going to be there. But I think they like that lingering doubt yeah. because they know they don't want to be fucking. Right. And they know very often that the woman does want to, right? So they'll leave you in this limbo. I can't stand limbo. I would rather someone say no straight up than kind of lead me down the garden path. And I also think that there are men who just like to be desired. Now, we all like to be desired, and that's okay, but I'm not going to waste your fucking time. Like, if you're coming at me, and it's clear that you want to date me, and you want to be romantic and intimate, I will say, you know what, Craig, John, Susie, whatever, I like you too, but I'm not down. I just think that men, because of their egos, because there is nothing as behemoth as the male ego, they love just the attention and everything. So I like, you know, I love being around Jamel and she's beautiful and she's luminous and she's so bright and blah, blah. Yeah, but homie, I don't have time for this. Like, what are we doing here? I really wish that we could get to a place where we could be really frank about that up front. Now, um, was this a was this a mentality you always had or was it just a matter of, of experience? I think it was experience. Okay. Yeah, there are many things that you hear me talk about in my memoir that came much, much, much later in life. So why is it then? I mean, you you mentioned it's like an ego boost because I know of a few friends that have been in the situation where you describe where they have and they know these really amazing guys who um, I like to call it the Ross Rachel game. And even though, <laughs> swear to God. Friends reference. Yes. And the, the irony of me dropping a Friends reference is I swear on everything. I have seen a half an episode of Friends. <laughs> But, you know, over the years, you hear about it enough, and I'm just like, okay, so Ross and Rachel had this thing. Like, I I get the gist of the show, and I get some of the dynamics of it. But it's it's like that. It's like they want that constant kind of tension. Is it because, maybe for the male mind, and I realize I'm asking a woman to dive into the male Mm -hmm. mind, but I I feel like we know them a lot better than they know us. I do, too. Absolutely. You can just be mad at me for saying it, but I feel like that's the truth. Yeah. At any rate... um, it, it it feels like some of them have a hard time closing the door. Like they may not know oh, in that moment. Really and so they point. try to predict like, but five years from now, I might feel differently. Yeah. You know what? I think that's a really astute observation. I think, again, that this goes to the ego. And I think it, and one man told me once, Sophia, never underestimate a man's fear of rejection. He, it, we, we are morbidly fearful of being rejected. So I also think that men... 
I think, anecdotally, in my experience, that men tend to do this more. I'm dating Sophia, and I don't really want to be with her anymore, but before I get off that boat, let me make sure I've got your melon pocket. Right. right. So then there is this Venn diagram, then there is this gray zone where you're cheating on fucking both of us, right? And you're not you're not being really upfront with with either of us. And I think that that's true. I think that, you know, I hear way more men, and tell me if you've had this experience, that talk about the one that got away. <laughs> she was my true love. Honestly, none of my girlfriends talk about that. None of them have this like, oh my God, Sophia, if it had just worked out, it's like, nah, like it didn't work out and we just kept it moving. Whereas I think men have this very romantic attachment to the notion of the one and therefore, like you're saying, hold out the possibility that she could be the one. So I have two theories on this. Mm. One is when you we when you were just mentioning ego, I think men have bigger egos or I'm sorry, men have more fragile ego, egos, women have bigger egos. Oh, right? that's interesting. Because, okay. and the reason I say that, ask any of your girlfriends, because this is, the now, they may not lament about the one that got away, but right. you know what we always say, for literally every man we meet, whether it's just a sexual relationship or a real relationship, we will always tell you we were the best thing that ever happened to him. Every single man, we will always tell you that, yes, right? Yes. Whether it's actually true or not, we'll be like, Psh, I'm the best thing that ever happened to him. Right. Because our egos are much bigger. Right. But there's a way more fragile, which oh, is it gets right. back to your right, point right. about why they kind of, you know, hold on and the one that got away. Uh, men, a, a guy actually told me this a long time ago. He said that um, uh, women fall in love more often. Men, when they fall in love, it is more deeply and that's why a lot of them you notice that they tend to either talk about the one that got away mm -hmm. they'll get i mean not to say every i mean men i've known men who've been married multiple times but like it's just it's just very different like we can fall we can fall in love several times yeah like we can do that like yes. i don't know sometimes if men can actually do that yeah i don't i don't know if they're i don't know if that that capability either but going back to your point about women having bigger egos do you think it's possible that women, and particularly women of color, that it's a survival mechanism. Oh, because we have to be our best cheerleader. We have to be. Yeah. We have to be our own hype man. Yeah, because no, because other than other than it. me and you, right. right? Other than me and you, like, and our crew, our rider dies. Who the fuck else is telling us that? That we're beautiful. That we're powerful. That we're brilliant. That we're creative. Dominant culture isn't telling us that. No, but that's why. Um, you, I'm, I'm just guessing here, but I, I obviously want your, your real um, answer is that it, it feels like uh, in listening to your book, The Baddest Bitch in the Room, and just everything I've read about you, the podcast I've listened to you with you on and the interviews you've done, is that that was almost a persona you created while real that yes. you knew you had to be that in yes. every room. Yes. And I, yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's really smart. And it's also that you know, part of the narrative that you heard is that I had to come into it and discover it for myself. And I think many others knew it before I did. Like somebody recently that I used to date, he texted me and he said, now everybody knows what I always, what I always knew. And, you know, I talk about Chris Lady, God rest his soul, saying that she's creative. You know, if you listen to the bonus content, which to me is some of the most touching content in the in the whole audiobook, when Raekwon says, so if you were always an artist, oh, shit, really? I didn't know that about myself, but you know me 26 years and you've known that. So I have helped some of the greatest talent in the world 
you know, the RZA, Jizza, ODB, God rest his soul, a Tribe Called Quest, Q-Tip, Raphael, Sadiq, D'Angelo, tell their stories. And I don't think there's anybody better at it than me. Honestly, I don't. But what I understand now, Jamel, is the reason that I'm so good at it is because I myself am a storyteller. And it took me until I was 50 to realize, oh shit, Sophia, you have a story to tell. And part of that is about the model minority myth and me believing, you know, get stay behind the scenes and you're a good little girl and pat me on the head and just get the work done and don't be on the red carpet and don't be out there. And so the baddest bitch in the room, it was inspired by my three girlfriends, Beth Ann Hardison, Joan Morgan, and Sam Martin, three black women, um, all of us at that point, 40 and above. And we were at Beverly Bond's second annual Black Girls Rock Awards. And I remember looking at them and thinking, oh, my girls are the baddest bitch in the room, bitches in the room, and that, of course, includes me. But you're right. It was something that I had to step into. So even if I was always that, I didn't necessarily know it. I'm a yellow girl growing up in a white world in Vancouver, right? And it took me kind of almost getting out of my own way to say, look, look at myself and say, yeah, Sophia, and then to actually come out and announce it in the way that I am doing. Yeah, the the. Uh, by the way, your um, audiobook is the first audiobook I've ever listened to because oh, yeah, it's the first you. one. I was never the model minority. As a petite Asian woman, I never had the luxury to simply lean in. I had to kick down the motherfucking door. I had to learn to be big and strong in other ways. As the RZA would say. My tongue is my sword, and I assure you, I have eviscerated many in my day. I am not the submissive geisha in a pastel silk kimono who shuffles in, head bowed, to serve you your tea. Look again. I am the ninja samurai in a Gucci leather fedora who swoops in unannounced and decapitates you in a single effortless stroke without an iota of compunction to serve you your head. Yeah, Did you oh, hear that audible? Yeah, it's the first one. Uh, it was by necessity because it, had you had a printed copy, I would have read it because I'm a journalist and I like to feel the pages, so I'm of a course. weirdo that way. Uh, but it, it was interesting having the audiobook experience um, because you had the actual voices <laughs> to hear Method Man's voice and all that. And I was like, oh my goodness, she's got like actual voices in here. So what made you decide to do this as an audio project as opposed to... A print one. Right, which is the traditional route. Mm -hmm. The traditional route is that you and I, we write a book and then there's an e-version and there's an audio version. And um, when I was shopping the deal with my agent, Mariah Spence, it was a competitive deal and I did actually have a much bigger offer on the table for print. And um, when I had my very first conversation with Jessica Alman-Galland, who was my editor at Audible, she said, Sophia, you know, over here at Audible, we would like to create a bespoke audiobook for you. Now, I myself had never listened to an audiobook, Jamal. <laughs> and as soon as she said that, I said, the first thing I said was, can I have Method Man in my audiobook? And she said, well, if you can get him, yes, you can have him. Because I always knew that in telling my story, whatever form it took, that that story in the studio would set it off. Because it was so significant to me how he defended me against essentially one of their crew, somebody that he barely knew. And, you know, he's an MC. He's an artist. He's known for his voice. He, is, he has spent decades honing his delivery. 
So the idea of that was so enticing to me. And then it ballooned from there, right? So the first person in my mind is Method Man. And then, of course, I think about the other members of the clan. So I ended up with my with the author's voice, 25 guest voices, sound design, um, music, licensed music, and score. And nobody's ever done that before. And That's it was a, a huge, huge undertaking. Oh, no, oh my god! You have no idea. Listen, I'm going to announce right now, I never want to chase another rapper for the rest of my life. <laughs> I am so done. <laughs> I'm so through. No, I, I, it was very unique. And I, I was thinking to myself, because I do not know much about audiobooks. I mean, I know they exist. I know the purpose of them. I was like, are they all this way? Are they all? <laughs> but I'm glad you, you no, cleared that up. No, 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 they're, they're not. And... Um, I'll take my Grammy now, thank you. Uh, and so I think, Jamel, what I knew, and it's funny because both Audible and I, we both mutually contractually stipulated that it had to be my voice. Because there are, you know, I could get the best actress in the world. She's not going to emote the way that I do when I lose my father. She couldn't, you know. And even if she acted like she was sad, it's still my life. Or, or when my son was born. There's going to be a very specific way that I deliver that because it's my life and it's so close to me and it's my heart. And, you know, I, I knew that I would cry. I knew it. I can't possibly talk about losing my father, God rest his soul, and Chris Lighty, God rest his soul, within six weeks and not cry. And I wasn't sure if I cried too much. And I said to, I said to my producer, um, I said to my producer, Kat Lambrex, I was like, Am I crying too much? Can you understand me? And she said, "No, we're good. You know, we're we're going to leave. We're going to leave this in." And I've actually had a lot of people, Jamel, come back to me and say, "We really appreciate your openness and your vulnerability." So, what got you to a point? Now, I guess I'm real quick. I'll say for the people who maybe don't know, but Chris Lighty was the one who oversaw Tribe Called Quest, correct? Um, he, yes. Yeah. I mean, it had a much bigger yeah. influence than that, obviously. But that was um, what I know. A lot of people associate his name with. Um, but yeah, I mean, for um, for people who are um, you know unfamiliar about the process of, of writing a, me- a memoir, because I'm writing mine right now, right? Or good, yeah, good and terrible at the same time. Always, always, it is because the, so far the most frightening part for me is that I, see, I'm a door closer, right? In the sense of once I kind of resolve something emotionally, I leave it there. And I don't really believe in regrets. I believe everything is supposed to happen for a reason. Yes. Even if I don't necessarily like the outcome, I, I can accept it yes. because I feel like it's going to get me to some place I didn't expect to be, right? So, uh, but when you start digging into emotions that you have buried, it can be a very tough emotional process. And so I'm sort of in that right now. So what got you the point? What got you to the point where you decided I'm ready to tell my story? I don't think it was the fear of the, what I call the emotional excavation. I wasn't concerned about that. It was more about my resistance to wanting to be public. I mean, I moved here in 1987 and my first job was with Paul Simon coming off the Graceland tour. I have essentially for 30 years worked with, like I said, some of the greatest talents and the biggest stars. And so what it means is that at 22 years old, I was keenly aware of the price that one pays to abdicate your anonymity. And my mentor, God rest her soul, Sonia Chang, she said that to me. She said, so cherish your anonymity. And I didn't really know what that meant until I started to be more celebrity adjacent. And especially now with social media. 
And it wasn't until I, I went to work at Universal Music Group in 2014. And, you know, Jamel, I took on a number of mentees, young women, 22 fresh out of college. And I realized, okay, I'm 50 years old. I'm a single mother. I have two kids. I've worked in many different disciplines. I have a really a vast, <laughs> varied resume. I think that my story can help these women. And then uh, Lean In came out. And I don't know if you've read it. But yeah, I it read it. wasn't, you know, look, there are jewels in there. But it wasn't written from our perspective, and it wasn't necessarily written for us, right? No, no shade, but it's not, it didn't really speak to me. So I had originally conceived of the book as a lean-in for women of color. And I think that – and then I went to this thing called the Fast, uh, Fast Track of the LA Film Festival, and we were pitching, and we told our bios, and everybody was like, that should be the movie that gets made. And so it was kind of these three catalysts. And what it took, Jamel, because a lot of people said to me, as I'm sure they say to you, you got to write a book, you got to write a book, you got to write a book. Well, my story in my mind was, what was I going to write about? Oh, I hung out with famous people. Well, who cares? Uh, you know, I don't care about telling that story. Or, you know, it, it, because it felt like it would be narcissistic and self-aggrandizing. And again, I am somebody who has for three decades been acutely aware of what it means to be famous. And that shit's not as pretty as everybody thinks it is. When I understood that telling my story could be helpful to others, because that's why God put us here, right? We're supposed to be in service of others. When I understood that by stepping out into the spotlight and paying that price, because that's a price to me. It's not, I'm not excited about becoming famous because I'm about to be famous. I'm not excited about the scrutiny that I will fall under and people knowing my kids, right? Some people might be enticed by that. I'm not enticed by it. For me, it's an, a toll that's be, going to be exacted on me, but I'm willing to abdicate that and to pay that price if it means that my voice can help other people, as yours will and does. And we're okay with it. You know, whatever, whatever the bullshit is that we're going to deal with, you know that your voice is helping people. I know that my voice, because I've already gotten feedback, is helping exactly whom I wanted to help, young women of color. And if people are there for the, the fun celebrity stories or some of the celebrity interactions, that's fine, but right. they're going to walk away. They might come in there for some dessert, but they're going to walk away with some broccoli. Thank you. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of the way I look at it. Um, so I guess to, to, to start with your origin story, um, you know, I, I, I've, you've talked about this and, and I've certainly read it is that I know your introduction into hip hop was uh, the message, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the first mm -hmm. hip hop song uh, that you heard. But w hearing it is one thing. But when did you realize that hip hop wasn't just a genre? It was a movement. I think I understood that. So the first, right, so the first domino that tipped was hearing the message and kind of hearing that sense of urgency and the poetry and this world that was so vibrant. And then it was seeing Run DMC's King of Rock video. But it wasn't until I moved to New York and got ensconced in the scene and was going to the clubs that I was like, oh my God, there's a world because when you're not in the world, you can't have a sense of it. I mean, I grew up in Vancouver listening to Top 40 radio and listening to punk rock and stuff like that. But that's a very two-dimensional relationship, right? You come to New York and it's five-dimensional. <laughs> and so that's when I was really so just like Forrest Gump, like, holy shit, here is this thing. And it is powerful. And it is important. And it is vital. 
And I was privileged enough to be welcomed into this world. And that's, that's when I really understood it was when I moved to New York. Mm. It, 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 I, it still amazes me. I, I still, even though I, I've heard you explain it, I just, I still don't know how you were able to just navigate right into it. Because as you know, the, while the hip hop community is a, inclusive on some levels, it's generally not. And especially while um, you were in the, the people of color minority family. Right. <laughs> the fact is, you know, at that time when you jumped in, I mean, it was very much a black movement. And so, male. And male, a black male movement. Yeah. You're absolutely correct. So what do you think was key for you in infiltrating that world? I think it was that people recognized my passion and respect for the culture. I think that even though my experience as a Korean-Canadian middle-class, college-educated French lit major was so vastly different from the artists that I worked with, I didn't know you were a French lit major. You were really checking all the boxes, weren't you? <laughs> oh, my God. French lit? Why not just say art history? That would have been the other one. <laughs> um, I think that they saw, they just saw somebody who was really excited about what they were creating and then allowed me to help them create. You know, recently, Jamal, somebody said to me, you know, I talk in my memoir about being around Wu-Tang was the first time I felt truly seen. And you know exactly what that means in the profundity of that feeling. Like your fiancé. <laughs> he, he truly sees you. He better. <laughs> <laughs> no, he does. And, and then, and, and, and my friend said to me, but Sophia, did it ever occur to you that they might have felt truly seen by you? And, you know, Buster Rhymes said to me last year, he said, Sophie... Something like, he said, you're one of the most consistent people. You are, No, he said, you are the most consistent person I know. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, Sophie, you saw leaders of the new school before we got a deal. You knew us after we had a deal. You knew us when we broke up. You knew me before I had a solo deal. You knew me after. You were always the same person. And Ghostface says the same thing. He said, you never changed. And I think, Jamal, that for these artists who go through, you know, some, you know, hills, valleys, and peaks and stuff like that, to have somebody there that just love them so deeply and so clearly and so unabashedly and didn't have an agenda, I think that was important because I never asked any of them, anything of them until the audiobook. But before that, right, I mean, what was I doing? If I go to a Wu-Tang show, I make sure they have water. I make sure that they have their towels. And it's not my job, and I'm not taking anything away from the tour manager, but I just do this on top, right? Like if Method Man is changing his shirt, he'll hand me his sweaty shirt. I'll make it goes, make sure it goes into a plastic bag and it gets put away. Like I was always in service of them. You know, wanted to, are you guys good? Do you have everything you want? Do you want, any, do you want anything to eat? That's just my nature because I'm a mother and I'm a caregiver. And so for me to now be on the other side of it is really extraordinary, but I think they always appreciated that... I never asked any of anything of them except for them to see me for who I was, which then in turn meant that we loved each other really, really deeply. Because I think there's so many people in this world, and you know this, that are always, there's always an angle. 
there's always something in the back of my head. Hey, Jamal, how you doing? And maybe, you know, we're three minutes into the conversation. Can you get me ticket? Okay, that's what this is about. And there was never that addendum. There was never, you know, in a contract, there was never an exhibit A. (laughs) Now, how did you, or who was the first member of the the Wu-Tang clan that you met? Like, how did you kind of get into their world? Um, The first member that I met was the RZA. At the time, his name was Prince Rakim. I still actually call him Rakim to this day. Uh, The whole industry was buzzing about the Wu-Tang Clan demo. It was Protect Your Neck, Tears, and Method Man. And I couldn't sign them because RZA, famously a legend, asked for a non-exclusive deal, which means that Jamel Records can sign Wu-Tang Clan, but if Method Man wants to go do a solo deal, you don't have the exclusive on that. And nobody wants to do that deal. But Loud Records ended up doing it, with a, which I think was a really smart decision. But what I knew unequivocally was that Jive Records was not going to give them that deal. So I wasn't able to meet him then. And then I got the Gravediggers demo, which was his horrorcore group. And then I met him, and it was this really incredible meeting. You know, Jamel, when you meet those people and you go, number one, you're kind of amazed by the enormity of their like intellectual, emotional, and spiritual capacity. And there are not many people like this in the world. And then there's this thing where you almost feel like, oh my goodness, there's kind of a reciprocity here. I wouldn't say that it would describe <laughs> me that way, but that he knew that, you know, there's a, that we, we were kindred spirits and I knew that we would be friends forever. And that was my door in. That was the first chamber, so to speak. And then I met the rest and then Old Dirty Bastard was actually the last one that I ended up meeting. So who was the hardest for you to develop a relationship with in the group? Huh. I would say the hardest was probably, maybe it was either Jizza or Inspected Deck, not because of how I felt about them or how they felt about me, but they are very low-key. And um, you know, they kind of, and Jizz is one of my closest friends now, and I managed him, but they're not in the mix like that. And so it was, you know, as opposed to Dirty, who was like, Rah! you know, like, I'm all over you. And Matthew was like, yes, you're mine, and I'm going to put you in my pocket. They're, they're a little bit more standoffers. So they were probably the ones that it was, it took me the longest to get to know. I know you probably have a hundred good ODB stories. I have the vinyl copy. I don't, I have like Three Mm-mm. vinyl albums, Mm-mm. okay. Mm-mm. The one, of course, when he had his... Oh, uh, Return to 36 Chambers, you mean with the... Um, no, 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 no. I have a vinyl copy of ODB's when he got the uh, his welfare, yes. a welfare yes. card on yes. the album. Like, uh, how, how could I not? Um, <laughs> I have that. No, I have two. I have I have that. On the only vinyl copies of anything I have is that one and Songs in the Key of Life. Yes. Um, wow. Yeah, which wow. I, I think might be the most perfect album ever made. Just me. Yes. My hot take. Don't at me, debate me out there. Um, <laughs> at any rate... Uh, but you have to have like a million ODB stories. So you have a favorite? Uh, or- one of Yeah, one of the stories is that, you know, Dirty loved women. Loved women. Shocking, given the yes, number of kids. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, we went to, 
we were at, I, I feel like it was a conference called How Can I Be Down in Miami? And I was there with all of my girlfriends and all of my girlfriends, and I talk about this in my memoir too, they're all fly girls, beautiful girls, right? And so he got us all in to this party and then we kind of got separated. And then one of my girlfriends, this beautiful Eurasian woman with long wavy hair and like green eyes, she ran into him and he must have forgotten that that was my girl. And so he apparently, he was like, yo, suck my boy's dick. And she was like, I'm with Sophia. And he was like, oh, peace, pardon me, pardon me, pardon me. And he was so mortified and he was so apologetic and so contrite. But, you know, I think, Jamel, that I walked a tightrope. I mean, I think we as professional women of color walk a tightrope every fucking day right? And what I knew was that I had, first of all, I've never been drunk and I've never been high, not because I'm some incredible, incredible disciplined person. I've just never been interested. And I never really fucked around. So the, I, I feel like I had this very sterling reputation and I got shit done and I took care of everything. Like Jim Jarmer says, no need to worry. We've got Sophia. She's the glue. So I had this really amazing, frankly, exalted level of respect from everybody. Like to this day, if I go to a Wu-Tang show, there will be somebody who meets me outside and brings me inside, brings me backstage. If I have to go to the bathroom, they will walk me to the bathroom and walk me back to make sure that I'm okay. And, but that's also not by accident. I worked for that. So him, his response being so like, oh my God, was really funny to me because it immediately meant she goes from this bucket, right, to this bucket. And you know what? He did get someone to suck his dick and he did it in public. He did it in public. He's like, yo, 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 what? thank God I wasn't there. He would never do this in front of me. But I was told later that he was like, yo, check it out, everybody. She's going to suck my dick. And a girl got on her knees and sucked his dick in public. So being that, um, you know, as you mentioned, like you're, you're in a very male space, obviously, yes. based off that story. <laughs> so how do you navigate that when you were, and not necessarily this incident in, in particular, but it, it is amazing how men and not even famous men are the ones that only do this. All men kind of do this where they do put, they compartmentalize women yes. like, oh, you know, you're you're my mother and you're my sister, you're my bitch, you're my side yeah, piece. Like, yeah. they put us all in yeah. a different category. Yeah. So was it sometimes difficult to not react to things that you're seeing um, and you're seeing them do and how they treat women not named Sophia? I never saw it. They never let me see it. You know, um, I, like... I would be at a show or I would be on the bus and I think they always knew that they didn't want to show me that side. And I've even had them say stuff like, Soph, not now, let's not talk about this, right? And I know it's codified and I know what it is. And I think they also wanted to maintain, they wanted me to maintain my vision of them. And so I, I was, I was, fortunately insulated from that. Um, but if I ever heard or saw anything that I thought was untoward in any fashion, Jamal, right? The amazing thing about my relationship with Wu-Tang and the space that they gave me and the confidence that I had in return to confront them was always there. And I never feared if I say something to them, 
I'm done. And I also think that I'm the kind of person that, you know, we choose our battles. I'm not going to confront everything. But there's a point that I get to where I am constitutionally incapable of keeping my mouth shut. And we all know what this is, right? But we take the calculated risk. Say, you know what? I kind of have to say something here. And it's not going to be comfortable for either of us. And you might shut the door on me, but I'm willing to take that risk because this is a really important thing for us to talk about. So I never, I never really had to see that. I saw, I saw around it, but I didn't, again, like I never, Dirty never would have said that in front of me, ever, ever. He never would have done that. Um, I can't believe that 30 minutes is already fallen behind this podcast. We have to take a break. But before we take a break, I want you to settle a debate that my fiance and I have had for some time now, right? Okay. So um, he, him and his friends play this game of who was the leader of the group, right? Of, of like a, a okay. R&B group, okay. a hip-hop group, whatever. Um, because I think there are some groups you're like, okay, who was actually the leader? Like you look at Outkast, you're like, well, who's the leader of the group? I mean, you know what I'm saying? So... One of the arguments we've had is about who was the actual leader of Wu-Tang. Oh, God, it was the RZA. That's what I said. Who else would it be, though? <laughs> he said it was Method, and I told him it wasn't Method. No, that's, <laughs> no, no those, are, those are really different. I mean, Meth is the biggest star. There's okay. no doubt about that. And I think that. that's what he sometimes that's conflates okay. it with. If he's conflating He's conflating two, with yeah. who's the biggest no, star. No, that's fine. In, in terms, uh, but frankly, RZA, so we need to compartmentalize this a little bit. RZA is becoming a really big star because he has branched into Hollywood. He's directing, he's acting, scoring he's producing, movies, yeah. he's scoring, yeah. he's writing screenplays for goodness sake. But Meth is also a, a star in, an, in, an, in his own right and he's also acting. But if you go see a Wu-Tang show, there is no doubt that Method Man is the star of that show. I if, feel like you just said we were both right. No, 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 no. The leader, no, the leader of the group yeah. is RZA. Yeah. There is no doubt. He's the abbot. Nobody ever called Meth the abbot. RZA is the abbot. That is his brainchild. And as far as I know, the four-part Showtime docuseries that aired in May, the 10-part scripted Hulu series that's airing right now, that's RZA. Now, I also have to add to that, RZA can't do any of that without Wu-Tang. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. you, you, can't, you can't have a general without an army. And he's so in that way, he would say that they are all equal players. But in terms of if you give somebody the title of leader, they call him the abbot. It's your, uh, what's your husband's name? Uh, uh, it's Ian. Ian? You're wrong, honey. Yes! <laughs> I have this on tape. <laughs> Love it. Um, I have so much more to ask you about. Uh, I could do just a conversation on Wu-Tang and itself for a whole hour, but a lot of other artists I, I certainly want to ask you about. And Oh, and um, by the way, who who do you think is the leader of Outkast? Because I, I can't call that one. No, I can't call it either. And so, because I think they both, I mean, a lot of people are going to say Andre 3000. And I could go because on Because he's more popular. Because he's more popular. But That's more popular doesn't thing. mean the leader. That's right. I always look at the brains behind the operation. Okay. I don't know which one it is because I think at different points, yeah. they have, um, you know, they've both shown over time what, what each of their strengths are, what they bring to the group together. Yeah. But I think most people just automatically default to Andre. Default to yeah. Andre. But I would say that back in the day when they first came out, oh, I, think big the boy. Lead, I actually think it was Rico from Organized Noise. Oh, duh, of course. Don't you think? Yes, Because he, he was really the brains behind them. Yes. He was the brains behind Goody Mob. He was actually the brains behind TLC. That's also true. I mean, but it's it, like TLC, I think that was the one we brought up because just 
you know, the members of the group um, is like, was it because they all had a different function? And I think I tried to argue it was left eye. I feel like I did. <laughs> I, feel like I, I feel like that was my argument. I, I don't know if it was right, but I don't know. I think you might have said T Paz. <laughs> so, um, yes, definitely. But anyway, uh, much more with Sophia Chang when we come back. You mentioned earlier about like how Method Man, that moment you guys had in the studio where he stuck up for you, didn't know you. Um, fast forward from that, from him uh, sticking up for you, sticking up for you. It seems like you guys have always had like a certain kind of kinship. Uh, he also called you the group's muse. I know. Yeah. What did you What did you feel about that? What did you think about? I that? was stunned when he said <laughs> that. You know, he kind of hesitates and he says, "She was our muse. Fuck that. She was our muse." And I don't never ever thought of myself that way but if he said it I'm also not going to dispute it because it's him right if somebody else said it that would be one thing but it's method man Uh, I was really really touched by that and you know Jamel the process one of the beautiful process one of the beautiful things about the process of production of this was getting really close again to the guys and recording it and all and us reliving these moments together you know like me talking to Ray like remember this he's like yeah I remember that soap and talking about writing out the cream video treatment and talking to meth and you know I have like I said there's bonus content he was like yeah I wanted to beat his ass talking about the guy that you know about Jamal who was in my face and stuff like that. Um, it's been really beautiful to have to relive this stuff with them. And he's just, he's extraordinary. It, it was in a way when I, when I watched of Mike's and Man, which is the documentary on Showtime uh, about the Wu-Tang Clan, uh, it was certainly a great way for me to relive um the time where I felt like I was coming of age as a hip hop fan. But there was also, it was also kind of sad because uh, even though, you know, everybody's cool, but it's like that thing that they had in terms of even their relationships, it's like it, they'll never have that back. And it just, that just, I don't know, there, there was a part of that that was just really disheartening to see. I understand why, but it was just still no less, nonetheless disheartening. But who can sustain that? Outcast didn't. Tribe Called Quest didn't. I mean, I think that we would have a much harder time talking about the ones that did. I hear that Mick Jagger and Keith Richards despise each other. You know? I mean, I think that when you introduce money and fame into any equation, it is so difficult to keep it all together. Number one, you get older, you have children. You move away, so maybe we're not all in Stapleton and Killer Hill anymore in the, in the you know, Park Hill projects of Staten Island. So there's geography, too. Maybe I decide to move my family to Jersey. Well, I'm going to move to Atlanta, so not everybody's sleeping on the floor and on the couches anymore. It's like organized noise. You know, when I first, I first met Outkast, the first time I went to Atlanta, it was in 94, I believe. It was after the LaFace Christmas album came out, and I heard Players Ball, and I was like, what the <laughs> fuck is this? I got on a plane. I went right to Atlanta, and at that time, everybody was sleeping on Rico Wade's floor. Well, that doesn't happen once you, you know, and you can't. And so, yes, it's disheartening, but I think I would also be 
stunned if they could sustain that level of closeness after this long. So is that why you think in present day, we don't really see any hip hop groups anymore? We don't see any R&B groups. Well, that's a good question. Oh, really? That's a good point. Mm-mm, you don't see them. Like it, it just either that model doesn't hold up or nowadays people are just much more, much more comfortable doing their own thing. But you don't, you do not see groups anymore. Huh. Yeah. You know what? Honestly, I didn't, that didn't occur to me. The only group I can name is Migos. Um, I don't know if I, if, if I was smarter about this and if I knew more about it, Jamel, I would have to say that there must be some correlation between the new business model being streaming and that you're not making money off of albums. So I also think that the revenue model has shrunk. So unless you're huge, huge, you're not really making money, right? Because you're not really selling albums. And so you turn to merch and touring. And how many people have a really big business that way? So maybe people are even thinking, you know what, Jamal, the five of us could put together a group, but that means I'm only getting 20%, whereas I could get 100%. I don't know. That's just a theory. But I've never thought about that until you just brought that up. So uh, along the those same lines, do you feel as if today's artists, um, are they... Are they wiser about the business end? Yes. Or they are. Oh, okay. I think so. Okay. Oh, I absolutely think so. I think that, you know, you have all the knowledge at your fingertips. I think that when I was coming up in the late 80s and the early 90s, many, many artists put their heads in the sand and said, just get it done and let me create. Now, because everything is O's and ones, right? Everything is digital. Everything is data. And you have access to it. I mean, if you have ever, I don't know if you've ever seen an artist portal at Spotify, the level I'm familiar. <laughs> yeah. The level of data that you can get is granular. And it's amazing. A little scary, but it's amazing, right? And I find that, you know, so I worked with Joey Badass and I ran his label Pro Era Records, and he was incredibly curious. I want to know everything, Soph. And that doesn't necessarily mean that he's smarter than artists from 25, 30 years ago. It's just a different day, and we have access to so much more information. And I love this new trend. Now, how how is your relationship with um, the younger artists now? Because I, I don't know if you go through that, because I, I find myself doing this talking to younger people, period, where there's a Part of me, I feel like old woman yelling at cloud. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So how in a, in a game that kind of is rigged for youth. How do you relate to them now? I don't. You know, I'm not, <laughs> I, love that I mean, <laughs> I don't, I'm not, I'm not in the industry anymore. And the right. last time I was in the industry was 2017 and I was running a label. So Jamel, I haven't done A&R since 1993. I never, ever want another job that is predicated on my knowledge of pop culture because I don't have any. And it's and, and to your point, I don't think that there is a musical genre that is more youth-oriented than hip-hop. Hip-hop is by the young, for the young, about the young. So if I sat here as a 54-year-old mother of two grown teens and I said rap caviar is the soundtrack of my life, I'd be like... What the fuck is wrong with you? And that's not that that has nothing to do with a judgment on that music. I outgrew it. Hip hop is exactly where the fuck it's supposed to be. And so am I. And those do not intersect. 
I think that it's, you know, so my relationship, so my, let me, let me, let let me bifurcate your question. My relationship to current hip hop is that I simply don't have one. I don't really listen to hip hop anymore. Really? No, current music, I barely listen to it. Mm. Like if Joey comes out with an album, I'm going to listen to it because I love Joey and Joey's my friend, right? But I don't have a curiosity about it the way that I used to. And in terms of having a relationship with the community, I don't really have that either. But I will say that when I do meet artists... I do, because I do, honestly, Jamel, I do truly think that I have a gift with artists. There, I can build a relationship. Like G Herbo, for instance, out of Chicago, whom I adore. He was signed to Cinematic, another small label that I ran. And Herbo and I hit it off immediately. Herbo's music isn't for me, and he wouldn't think it's for me, you know? And, but the man the man G Herbo and he's now a father and a loving husband and his music and his family and all that. Those were things that we could talk about. And so we have a bond and I love him to death. So other than that, I don't, I don't really exist in the space anymore. So, um, the little bit that you do here, mm-hmm. um, is it, is it hard for you to listen to because you, of the, the, the era in which you come from? Right. Yeah. I I certainly find it less interesting. So I think, Jamel, that Public Enemy wouldn't get signed today. I don't think Tribe no, they would wouldn't. get signed today. Oh, X Clan sure as fuck wouldn't get signed, <laughs> right? No. Brand Nubian, Poor Righteous Teachers, all of these guys that were five percenters and speaking as politically as they were, I don't think that they would have deals now. It's been so commodified. It is such a global commodity that those things, anything to me that was political would have a very hard time now a major label giving them a deal. So that's the, you know, I love Public Enemy. And I think they were so powerful and so amazing. They're one of my favorite groups of all time. And I don't, and so that's the stuff that really touches me. And and I'm really a golden era person. I left hip hop in 95 to manage, to do Kung Fu for 15 hours a week. So as of 1995, I don't really have that profound a bond to hip hop. And I think that when I listen to music, the music now, Jamel, what I, what stands out to me the most is opioid addiction. I agree. Like, I, I didn't know, and, and again, I'm not here to lecture anybody, because God knows when I was really at the height of listening to hip-hop, they used to rap about all kind of drugs. I mean, mostly, you know what the ones they rapped about. It was like a lot of weed. It was and weed, though. It was mostly weed. Yeah. They rapped more about selling drugs right. than they did about that. But these days, man, I don't know who this was listening, I was listening to the other day when I was in my car, and... He built a whole. He had. He built about fifty-five hooks around Percocet, and I was just like, "Dog!" Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it, it's it's like there's um, it's like this duality of consciousness going on. On the one hand, we are having a huge conversation around opioid addiction and overdoses, and contrary to popular belief, from what I understand, it is not just the white community that is being that is being. Um, victimized, no, inflicted not by opioid addiction, Mm-mm. right? And so on the one hand, there is, there, nobody's in denial about how addictive, op- they're opioids. It comes from opium, <laughs> right? So nobody's, nobody's in denial about how dangerous they are. And then you have rappers that are out here bragging about lean perks, mollies, Zan, I mean, the whole, you know, the whole notion that, so it's one of two things to me, Jamel. 
they are either lying and they don't really do those drugs or they are doing them and they are addicted. You don't, I just don't, I'm not a drug user, but I, from what I understand, you don't do opioids casually. It's not like I'm a housewife and, oh my God, I just took my kids to soccer practice. I'm going to have a glass of rosé tonight to just take the edge off. I don't think that's what opioids are. I think there's very little space between zero and 60. And so what I, what I really, really want is for people to be more open about substance abuse, mental health, and suicide in hip hop. We will continue to lose talent. The culture will continue to lose talent if these issues aren't addressed. And I'm not judging anybody. I'm not judging the artists. I'm not judging their managers because their managers could be in there trying to do some kind of intervention. I am judging the whole nation's inability and refusal to have a more robust conversation around this because I don't necessarily know who the artists are, but when I hear that they've overdosed on something, it's really, really sad. And I'm also not surprised because everybody's out there talking about it. And you have a whole generation of kids, Jamel, that are hearing this and think that it's cool. Maybe not all of them, but they are being influenced. Now, did how you look at hip hop, did that change um, when you started having kids? (laughs) Well... By the time I had kids, so it was 2000, and again, I'm not that into hip-hop, but do I listen to it differently and have a different relationship as I get older? And I am now finally saying, yes, I am a feminist, um, and I have a daughter and I have a son? Absolutely. Um, You know, I have a really brilliant friend. His name is Casey Lehman. He's from Jackson, Mississippi. He wrote a memoir called Heavy that everybody should read or listen to. And I remember hearing him speak a couple years ago, and he talked about how his relationship changed with hip-hop as he got older because of the rampant misogyny that he saw in it. And he just couldn't, you know, he said, you know, Sophia, I used to rap along these lyrics with glee and I can't even put them in my mouth anymore. And so listening to hip-hop, you know, my kids are really big hip-hop fans. And I talked to both of my kids and I said, look, I am, praise Jesus that you love hip-hop because if you were like fans of country, I don't, I don't know, I might have to disown you, but they love hip-hop. And I said to them, What I want you to know, and this is a conversation in particular that I had with my daughter was, you know, obviously your mother was raised by Wu-Tang. Your mother, hip-hop gave me everything. But I need you to be very clear on certain things in the music and a lot of the music that you're listening to. There is a lot of misogyny. There is a lot of violence against women. There There can be an utter lack of respect and hatred of women. And it is also... You know, Casey pointed out to me, or somebody else pointed out to me, you know, Sophia, when rappers talk about women, not all the time, but in general, they're talking about black women. And that's a problem. And that misogynoir, which I think is such a brilliant term that somebody came up with, is something that I wanted my children to be aware of. So look, my children are middle class. They will be college educated. They live in a world of privilege where the that world is not necessarily going to, they're not as... They're not as vulnerable to it, right? But it was still really important to me that they understood that. And I, in the same way that I had a conversation with them about porn being very clearly about male pleasure and through the male lens. And so when I listen to the stuff now, yeah, the stuff now that I listen to and the lyrics, I just think, again, I don't really like it, but I'm not judging it because you don't, you're not, you didn't make it for me. 
And I always go back to the fact that I listen to as bad or worse. Um, Cause yeah, I mean, I was listening to the AMG version of bitch better have my money. <laughs> that might have the greatest opening line of all time <laughs> in any rap song. Okay. <laughs> and if you don't know it, go YouTube it. Thank me later. Um, so I, I, I can't judge. I look, I felt like exactly. I was raised by Lil Kim and, and, and Luther uh, Campbell. So right. it's not for me to, to certainly judge, but as you said, it's not that, you know, you outgrow hip hop. It's yeah, not the other I way around. Exactly. Yeah, it's like I, I'm a I'm an old lady now. Yeah, I get it. Give me my songs in the key of life and leave me the hell alone. Totally. <laughs> that's pretty much. <laughs> that's pretty much. Um, you know what it is. Uh, I I want to go back to something because um, uh, and before I forget this question, when we were talking about like how you were able to navigate your way on the scene, one one thing I feel like now more that we talk about is cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. So. Were you aware or how much were you aware that you're trying to infiltrate um, a scene? And I, don't, I, don't, I hope people don't use infiltrate or think of it, I'm saying this negatively, but you're getting inside a culture, mm-hmm. trying to understand it. How do you do that without being accused of, of, of cultural appropriation? Because nobody, at least from what I've, I've read and um, have seen, has ever accused you of that. And that's a very difficult, unique space to be in. Well, I appreciate that, um, and I think that would be really hurtful if I heard that. I think that would really hurt my feelings. I think that the fact that I was in at a at a pretty early stage, and the fact that I was also part of facilitating the creation of the culture is a little bit different. Of course, I was an outsider, you know, and I was and I was acutely aware of that, and. I think that, again, my belief in and the passion of it, and they just knew that I was there. And I think all the artists that ever worked with me, Jamel, would always say that I, Sophia Chang, always did everything in my best interest. And therefore, to a greater degree, the culture in general. Like when Ali Ali Shaheed Muhammad interviewed me for a microphone check, his show with NPR, him and Franny Kelly. And when I said to him, you know, it was such a privilege to be welcomed into hip hop, he said, Soph, I look at you and I see hip hop. And I was really taken aback because I would never say that. I would never be like, yeah, look at me, Sophia Chang, you see hip hop. I might say you see the baddest bitch in the room, but I'm never going to say you see hip hop. And so... Again, I think that we have different perspectives, like like Buster Rhymes saying, oh, I know the other thing that Buster Rhymes said to me. He kept saying it to me, you embody the culture. And I, and I have to ask him, one of these days, I don't really know what he meant by that. Because again, that's something I would never, ever say about myself. But I think it was really about just my devotion and how hard and how dedicated and how hard I worked to make sure that hip hop you know, my small part to make sure that hip hop fared as well as it could within the system. So, uh, yeah, I think, and, and I think the, the conversational cultural appropriation is really interesting because obviously that's a recent one. And I have a very smart friend, his name is Kevin Brynell, and he teaches critical race studies at Babson College. And he, so we, we bounce a lot of these ideas off each other. He's kind of my go-to um, around these things. And I said, we talked about cultural appropriation. He said, listen, Sophia, for me, there are three markers of cultural appropriation that I look for, and it's a mnemonic device. It's D, D-E-E. It's denigration, exploitation, and erasure. And I can say with a really strong degree of confidence that I never did that. 
I never denigrated hip hop. I never exploited hip hop. I never erased hip hop. I mean, for God's sake, my book was going to be called Raised by Wu-Tang. And, you know, I'm always telling people that, like, Method Man was the first person to call me family. Do you know what that felt like, Jamel? I'm a Korean-Canadian girl. You know, English is my parents' second language. We never talk like that. And so to have Meth be like, self, come here. Your family. That was profound. Uh, so I think it was 95 that you, um, and for those who've never seen Sophia Chang, she has a, a partially shaved head, right? <laughs> but at the time, it was, yes. Yes, it was fully shaved in 95, right? I feel like it's no coincidence that you make that statement with your hair in what I think might be the greatest year of hip-hop, personally. Liquid Swords came out that year. Swords. Only Built for Cuban Links came yes. out that year. Can you believe the And didn't... Didn't um, All I Need came out that year, too? I believe you are correct. Uh, Me Against the World came out that year. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, probably, you know, I, I go, I, I vacillate between Outkast, Wu, or The Roots, or Tribe as my favorite hip-hop. Oh, and NWA, that's my other five. Uh, yeah. As my favorite group of all time, The Roots debut album, Do You Want More, came mm-hmm, out that year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and Return to the 36 Chambers also came out that yeah. year. Right, so that was a great embarrassment of riches. Embarrassment. So, what made you shave your head? I so I meet Wu Tang Clan. I go through my Asian Renaissance. (laughs) My brother always says, "Oh, Sophia, most of us do it at fifteen. You came around to it at 30. You know, I again, I was a white girl in a yellow world who wanted to be white. Okay, and then I discover hip hop, and then I move to New York, and then I'm embraced by this incredibly fertile, robust, beautiful culture, and I am really close to Wu Tang. And so they are obviously, they're called Wu-Tang. Wu-Tang, they're called Wu-Tang after Udang Mountain, which is a mountain in Hebei province where there is a temple where Tai Chi was founded, right? They named Staten Island Shaolin, for God's sake, Shaolin Temple. And that is the Mecca of all martial arts and the founding place of Chan Buddhism. So through them, I start watching these movies. And I watch John Wu movies, to me, the greatest director of all time and his muse and the actor, greatest actor of all time chow yun fat start watching kung fu movies and me and my girlfriend she's taiwanese american we were like let's do kung fu okay let's do kung fu so we started looking for schools and then we heard there was a shaolin monk teaching and we were like oh my god tiger woods is teaching golf down the street i mean it's essentially the same thing and so we went and found him and he didn't speak any english thank god she speaks mandarin and i walked in and i said this is what i want to do and i called my parents that night and i said i met the man i'm going to marry today I left the music business, hard right out of the music business. I left everything behind because I knew that this was my future. Even if I didn't know that he was going to be my partner, Jamel, I knew that this was my future. I am supposed to train in Shaolin Kung Fu. I am supposed to learn about Chan Buddhism. I'm supposed to help this man build his temple. That was so certain to me. And part of that process, my first day of training was February 10th, 1995. And... Four months later, uh, I shaved my head. And so one of the central tenets of Buddhism is non-attachment. Now, when I was a child, I had perfect hair. Long, thick, straight, black hair to my waist. And then I cut it when I was 25 to a pixie cut. And then I thought, you know what? I'm just going to take it all the way. And so it was a demonstration of my devotion to Chan Buddhism and to Shaolin Kung Fu when I shaved my head. And it was so liberating. I, I hope people didn't miss that. So you, 
you left the music business, you, you go and, and you study Kung Fu, but you married a monk? I did. I married a Shaolin monk, so I know that that sounds counterintuitive. <laughs> it does, because I thought they could not <laughs> no, they marry. <laughs> so in the, in the 14th century, Li Ximin, who was um, uh, one of the lords in China, the Shaolin monks helped him defeat his... Um, his enemies and his opponents, and so he gave them a special dispensation that they were allowed to drink alcohol, which they do. They were allowed to eat meat, and I think unspoken was, and you could fuck too. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, maybe they would have drawn more monks had some people known this, because I think everybody was thinking celibate, can't party, turns out. There's a different narrative. <laughs> so did everybody think you were out of your mind to do that? Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> I think anybody that knew me, Jamel, didn't question it because I've, I'm a Taurus. And I've always been really headstrong. And I've always, and I hope you got this from my memoir, I've always been really fearless. And I... Again, I have, you know, I have a middle-class safety net. I have the privilege of a middle-class safety net. So it's not like my parents would say, oh, my God, you're leaving the steady job with benefits and stuff like that, and if you mess up over here, you're going to be homeless or hungry. That was never going to be my fate. So I had the comfort of knowing that wasn't going to happen. But I also have the personality such that I'll zig, and then I'll zag, and I'll do, and I'll do what I want, and it's been really amazing for my personal, my internal, and my spiritual growth. And so when I did it, and, and I think, Jamel, once people met him, they were like, oh, yeah. And I became a much better person with him. I became a much better person under him. He was my master. You know, I was his disciple. I learned the greatest spiritual lessons of my life from him. And I, care, I started to practice in 1995. Next year will be 25 years that I've been training Shaolin Kung Fu. I do it six days a week. I will never stop, ever. See, that's why you're the baddest bitch in the room. <laughs> it's like, because you can whoop everybody's ass in the room. That's now I get it. On top of being smart and fearless, she also got them hands and feet for you as well. <laughs> now I get it. <laughs> Wondering what your perspective is uh, of you know, female MCs. And I know t- t- in today's times, like, as you said, like you're, you're sort of in, in and out, mostly out of the hip hop mm-hmm, culture. Mm-hmm. But it, I'm reminded of comments that Jermaine Dupree made maybe a month or so ago, maybe been longer than that, when he said he felt like all the female rappers that were out now, um, that they were just strippers basically with microphones. And really, he essentially said that. Yeah. He said he felt like he, he called it basically, he called it stripper rap. Right. And so, um, as you might imagine, that did not go over well. <laughs> you know, and there, he meant it that way. No, like he it wasn't it, taken out of context. Well, he, it, no, it was not taken out of context. His his criticism was that all the the material that women are rapping about today, he's saying that there a lot of them are former strippers. The material they're rapping about today is about that lifestyle. So he felt like they were saying and repeating the same things over and over again. As if we haven't heard a whole bunch of dudes always constantly rapping about who they fucking in drugs. Like, as if that has not been a thing, right? So that was his criticism. And, you know, there was a lot of women who um, took issue with it. Trina did. Rhapsody did. Like, a lot of the, the, the current artists. Understandably so. So I guess I just wanted to ask you, um, uh, what, you know, what was, like, the, the climate for female rappers? Like, what's your... 
to be a woman and make it in the hip hop industry as an artist, like how much harder is that? Oh, I think it's way, 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 way harder. I think it's harder for women, period, because we live in a patriarchy. Oh, oh you know, that's, I'm so disappointed that he said that because that statement reeks of sexism and misogyny. Look, I obviously, I'm a sex positive feminist. I believe that sex workers, male and female, should be protected. I do not, there is no shame to me in sex work if this, that is what you choose to do. So if you're saying, like to your point, that it's okay for um, there to be a running theme of fucking a stripper and dealing drugs, it's okay to say that and it to be that narrow topically, but it's not okay for women whose experiences to be strippers to talk about that. That's just super sexist to me. I think it's really narrow-minded, and I and I I think that it's I, I I'm I'm flabbergasted by the statement, frankly, um, and I'm deeply offended by it. If these women, these artists, want to talk about their experience the same way that men do, and you don't allow them that. You are not granting them access to the full spectrum of humanity, which is something a friend of mine, Julius Ona, said, which is what we experience all the time as people on the margins, right? We can only, you can be this, but you can't really be that. Back in my day, back in the golden era, it was much more robust. You had Moni, you had Latifa, you had Light, you had Yo-Yo, you had the Brat, you had so, you had Isis, you had so many female MCs. And the notion that it is a zero-sum game and there can only be so many, I think, again, speaks to patriarchy. So are you telling me that women aren't as talented? That's not possible. This is not a strongman competition. I can tell you that men are physically, physiologically stronger than women. I think that that's probably indisputable. But a gift for rapping, for writing rhymes, and for spitting, and for delivery, and for cadence, and for your voice, and for your use of metaphor and storytelling, what, that men are somehow better at that? That's fucking preposterous. But this is art through the ages, right? Like, I just saw Hannah Gadsby, whom I admire and adore so much. She did this amazing um, stand-up special on Netflix called... Um, uh, fuck, called Nanette last year, and she has this. She had this show in New York called Douglas, and she was an art history major, and she talked about how men, specifically white men, have always controlled the canon, right? So the canon. Think about literature. Think about art. Shit. Think about chefs. How many male chefs can I name? How many women can I name? I don't mean TV chefs. I mean chefs like a boulet or a boulou, you know, these guys and stuff like that, right? And then how many, you know, how many female MCs are out right now? We could probably hold them in our hand. That's, you cannot possibly tell me that men are better at rhyming than women are. You just get more access than we do. The gate is just open for you, whereas we got to fucking claw our way and scratch our way and get over that bitch because you don't open it for us the same way that you do for the men and that's not fair that's a word thank you for that ted talk um, <laughs> <laughs> and now we'll play a game okay. uh, i always love to end on a high note and especially this one is fun given the artists that you've represented in your illustrious career and just you know your overall knowledge of hip-hop so um it's called this or that you get two choices 
Don't bring in six choices. You get two. You can't add a choice. You can't phone a friend for a choice. Two choices. Okay. One or the other. All right. The fate of the world depends on this. <laughs> so this is a serious business. <laughs> this or that. Um, low end theory or midnight marauders? Low end theory. And you say it so definitively. Oh, it's my favorite tribe album. Oh, for sure. Is, just, is Midnight Marauders your choose. favorite? You can't. Okay. It's yeah. so hard. Oh, that's a tough one for you. So you're this and that. Uh, you, you can no, get no, with no, this no. and you can get no, with no. that. No, no. If you ask me. No, no. no. If I ask you, you if, would say. If it was on, if I was the one being asked yeah. the question, I would say, I, I answer these questions by what am I taking with me on the desert island yeah. that I'm hypothetically stranded yeah. on for the rest of my life. You're taking Marauders. I'm taking Midnight Marauders. Yeah, I'm taking Marauders. <laughs> that, is, that is literally one of the questions where there's no wrong answer. All right. Uh, which one of these two ladies is the baddest bitch in the room? Uh, Michelle Obama or Beyonce? Michelle Obama. But that's also a tough one. Brown sugar or lady? Lady. <laughs> How did you, by the way... Uh, Wind up manage you managed the Angela. I did for yeah. a short spell. So Dominic Trenier, God rest his soul. How many times do I say that throughout my memoir? Worked very closely with D and said, you know, called me up one day and said, Look, D wants to train in Kung Fu. I want you to call him. And we had this conversation and it was a 90-minute conversation. He thinks we met. I don't think we did. And um it was soul stirring. I remember two things he said to me, Jamel. One thing he said to me was, Sophia, I'm a God-fearing man. And the other thing he said to me was, I love you. He said it three times. And it wasn't romantic at all. It was just like, our, it's, it's <laughs> you know, Jamel, and it was on the phone, which is crazy, but it's like our souls opened and spoke to each other. And I love that man to this day. He is such an amazing human forget his talent that's a you know that's 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 undisputed but just the man that he is the human being that he is how supportive he's been of my book he was like i you know because i read him the passages that i wrote i had to i was like he's a very private man and i said look i'm about to put out this book and i talk about you in and i talk about falling in love with you and i read it to him and when i was finished reading it jamel he said wow, you're a great writer. And I said, are you okay with me telling this story? And he said, it's an honor. That makes that question even better. <laughs> that's why it's lady for me. That's why it's lady for That makes sense. Now, and I'm, I don't smoke weed. <laughs> no, right? Everybody was so, so disappointed. They yeah. were so disappointed. They're like, oh, that's not about a girl. Like, no, it, it literally <laughs> isn't. It is about smoke. I'm sorry if I ruined that for anybody. It's literally about smoking weed. Harder question to me is trying to pick between brown sugar and voodoo. That's harder for me because voodoo was amazing. I mean, Black Messiah was amazing too. So um, he is just an, an incredible um, artist. Silent, yeah. Um, instant vintage or the way I see it. The way I see it. I'm shocked you said that. <laughs> it's the album that I managed him for. Ah. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And finally, uh, Public Enemy or NWA? Public Enemy. I'm New York. I'm political. Not to say that NWA wasn't political, but I feel like Chuck and the group, but Chuck D really drew my attention to things in a way that he compelled me to think and see through a lens that nobody else did. I mean, Fuck the Police was also very powerful. But 
911 is a joke, fear of a black planet, you know, it's just, it was so, it was just such a wake up call for me. And it was, it was an, it was an education. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I completely agree that, you know, public enemy today, I don't even know what that would look like. They probably would not be signed. Um, also, I, I had that feeling about a lot of the female artists that you named too. Yeah. You know, I don't know if a lot of people get signed so- today. ISIS definitely, I, I don't think so. No way. You know, um, and it's just amazing that how, how cyclical yeah. hip hop yeah. You know, can be. So um, much like in the television game and the Hollywood game, I feel like uh, imitation is always the easiest route for Absolutely. most people. So they Absolutely. see a Cardi B and then next thing you know, they want to have 25 yeah, that's like that's that. That's because the label is saying, go get me another Cardi go B. Get there, isn't another a lot, there isn't a lot of imagination there. No, not at all. Um, well, you though, nobody ever accused you of not having any imagination. <laughs> that's for sure. Some of the best stories, everybody should definitely uh, go cop your book, you. uh, The Baddest Bitch in the Room. It's an amazing tale and just the way that it's done. I mean, it, Thank uh, you. Maybe all the other audiobook listeners are thinking like, "Welcome to 2019," but no. it was my first experience, and I think it was Thank it was you. one I'll always. Well, I've remember. spoiled you. Now you've flown first class, and you're gonna have to fly. In class. Yeah, I know, right? Oh, I love you. Um, anyway, as I said before, Sophia is out of fucks. I still got a couple left, so you guys know what's next. Fuck it, I'm bothered. So today's Fuck It, I'm Bothered is dedicated to all my power fans out there. And if you're not caught up on the show, number one, that's your fault. And number two, you can always press pause. And when you're all caught up, you can come back here and enjoy these takes because I'm about to get them off. Uh, The mid-season finale on Power has been aired, and we now have to wait until January to see how the series concludes. Uh, But that's not what I'm bothered about. It's called marketing. It's called promotion. They're trying to maximize this moment, so I get it. I have, however, prepared a list of grievances, a list of bothereds that cover how I feel about what we've seen so far. Uh, But before I do that, let me just get this one Thing out of the way first powers final season does not compare to game of thrones expectations are different at worst you could accuse power of trying to do too much game of thrones was a whole different level of disappointment mainly because they rendered Jon snow's bloodline totally useless and there seemed to be a massive surprise that somebody with a dragon actually acted like somebody with a dragon but i digress here are my list of grievances as follows as it relates to power Tariq. Do I really need to say anything more? I just don't understand his motivation and hatred for his father. Now, he told Ghost, and by the way, I want to whoop out my own belt every time he calls him Ghost because it's just so disrespectful. Anyway, he tries to act like Ghost never did anything for him. Uh, Did he forget that part where Ghost, Tommy, Tasha helped him cover up a whole ass murder a murder by the way that was completely his fault because despite his lineage a life of crime really ain't his thing can we discuss how Tommy let off a whole AR-15 in a New York City penthouse and not nary a police officer came for three hours can we also discuss why Proctor's cousin Benny went to step to Tommy about how he killed his cousin and he came to step to him with a knife After we've seen Tommy kill like 700 people on this show, you walk up on my mans with a knife? Does anyone else find it extraordinarily creepy that Ghost is making out with a dead Angela? Was it just me or did it seem like Councilman Tate was running for governor for eight years? 
Oh, and y'all just going to act like BG didn't get killed? We just going to gloss over that? Speaking of which, how did James St. Patrick suddenly become top choice for lieutenant governor when he has been connected to like 65 murders? Now, granted, they're always trying to pin the wrong murder on him, but that's not the point. How does this man have any political future whatsoever? Now let's get to the biggest cliffhanger of the show. Who shot Ghost? And notice it's who shot Ghost, not who killed Ghost. Just FYI, I'm reminded of the way The Wire ended. And for the record, power is entertaining. It is not The Wire. So stop comparing them. Anyway, Omar died at the hands of a little kid. The point was to show that as big as he was in them streets, in the grand scheme, he was nothing. That's why his death was nothing more than a blurb in a newspaper. Now, I didn't like how The Wire ended. I didn't like how Game of Thrones ended. I didn't like how The Sopranos ended. Point is, I don't know if you're supposed to be happy about how any show actually ends. As much as I'm entertained by the complaining about power, as much as I too like to join in on the complaining, the truth is that this show, or really any show, shouldn't be judged by its final season. I've enjoyed this ride. I'm invested in this show. I've wanted all these characters dead at some point or another because they worked my 235th nerve. But that is the point of good television. Keep you engaged, keep you complaining, and maybe you begin to hate watch it a little. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. Jesse Burton is the executive producer for Spotify. And Denise Holly is the program manager. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Hold up. 